from Sarasota Memorial and the Deb Kavanaugh Multimedia Studio. This is HealthCast, a healthy dose of information from experts you can trust. Hi, everybody. Welcome to HealthCast. I'm Allison Gottermeyer. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss the risks for prostate cancer detection and treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Carey, a urologist here at Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Dr. Carey, thank you so much for joining us. Allison, thank you for having me here. So I, you specialize in the treatment of prostate cancer. So I first want to ask you if you can talk about the prevalence of prostate cancer, even here in our community. Right. Well, it's quite prevalent here in Sarasota because one of the key issues for prostate cancer prevalence is just simply age. And so we, we simply have the population that's important for it. Um, numbers vary, but the, what I tell patients to remember is there are roughly 240,000 people this year in the United States who will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. That number is not so important because not all of those people need to be treated. In fact, many of them shouldn't be treated. The number we should be concerned with is the 34,000 roughly 34,000 people who will die of prostate cancer in the United States. And so those are the two sort of numerator denominator things that we like patients to understand. Uh, SMH has the prostate clinic. So can you tell us about what that is and why it's so important to have that uh, resource here in the community for those who get prostate cancer? Prostate cancer comes in various stages and grades, some of which are very important to be treated immediately and others of, of which really should not be treated at all. And so having a prostate cancer clinic, particularly in a county hospital where there's no profit incentive or motive, it's just the goodwill of our department and our, and our people for, uh, for the, the population of Sarasota County, it's very important for that. Um, we'd like to be able to see patients, as I say, from cradle to grave, meaning that people who have the risk of prostate cancer can come to our clinic and we're able to help them with, in terms of a diagnosis. Um, then we help them with treatment options and we help them uh, determine what the best uh, course is. Uh, not everybody needs uh, multiple courses of treatment. And as I, as I tell patients very often, it's often about the next best step. It's not, it's not having everything done at once, uh, but rather, you know, what is the next best step in your treatment? So who is most at risk for prostate cancer? You mentioned that some people are more at risk than others. I've spent a lot of my time uh, in, the, in the past looking at genomics, genetics of prostate cancer care, and I've had the privilege of giving a number of lectures on that. And often we think, well, gee, there should just be some quick genetic test that will help us uh, find out. And really it, it isn't. And so the number one risk factor for all of these malignancies in the genitourinary tract, and here today specifically prostate, is age. And so um, we, we realize that it's very rare in younger people and it becomes much more common in um, older people. Um, we look at people whose family members, and someone will come to me and say, well, I had a great uncle that had prostate cancer, and that really doesn't matter. But it does matter if your father or brother had prostate cancer, and if your, 
And if you had a sister or mother who had breast cancer, hormonally driven cancers, and we often look and see not just did your parents or siblings have cancer, but did they die of the cancer? And so clearly there's a genetic component. And we also know that there are environmental components. Um, people in Western Europe and the United States um, and even in the Caribbean islands where there's a very similar diet and lifestyle, um, we see that prostate cancer rates are very stable. But if you go into cultures where people would have um, genetics that would, would indicate that they should have prostate cancer, but they grew up eating a 1200 calorie plant-based diet with only a paucity of meat and a paucity of dairy, very often these people can live to be 80 years old um, if they don't die of other causes. And, they, and these people never have breast cancer or prostate cancer. But if you have someone born into that same area, but they move to the United States, eat our food, drink our water, live our lifestyle, they have the exact same um, they have the exact same risk of getting prostate cancer as the rest of us. And so without question, there's clearly a, a dietary and a, an environmental component. Whereas you realize that if, if you have a, a direct relative, a father or a brother, then yeah, that risk goes up. So there's both, there's both the familial, the genetic and the environmental. It all is multifactorial. So something we hear about a lot associated with prostate cancer is PSA. Can you explain first, what is PSA? A PSA is the prostate-specific antigen. It is a protein produced by the prostate and only by the prostate. Its function in life is to give seminal fluid the correct viscosity so that you're most likely to get your mate pregnant if you're attempting to. This is part of what the prostate and seminal vesicles do. As we age, uh, the PSA continues to be produced and it becomes an excellent cancer marker because we can measure it in the serum. And despite the fact that there is horrific confusion about the PSA, it really is quite simple. If the PSA is less than 2.5 and always less than 2.5, the chances of that person having prostate cancer is exceedingly low. Not always, not 0%, but it's exceedingly low. And that's the majority of American men. If the PSA gets greater than 10 and rising sequentially year by year, those men almost always have prostate cancer when we, when we biopsy them. But there, there is a, there's a downside to waiting that late because many of them will have already metastasized. It's spread and we cannot cure them. We can treat them, but we can't cure them. So we spend a lot of time thinking about men between PSA of 2.5 and 10. And it's, it's so important thinking about the PSA and what it does for us, as opposed to what the internet or other uh, factions might say, well, it's not a good test. Actually, it's a really good test that is often misused by physicians and by patients or, or both. And so um, I will uh, find, find patients that if they have one elevated PSA, okay, you have one elevated PSA. The, the entirety of the rest of your, of your life, you've always had a normal PSA. 
let's not panic with one elevated PSA. And if, we're, if we simply use the PSA judiciously, along with physical exam, family history, examination of urinary symptoms and discussions, and maybe looking at PSA, free PSA ratios, a combination of factors, we can often use the PSA as a very good screening tool and starting out to help people know who's at risk for prostate cancer. Who should have their PSA tested and when? And, and the, the American Neurological Association, and I'm, I've been a member of its leadership group in the past, uh, we haven't done a good job of answering that question. If we had done a good job as an organization and as, a, as, as physicians of telling people a cogent, good answer to that question, a lot of the problems with prostate cancer wouldn't exist. So several guidelines that I always tell patients is that everyone should have a PSA right about the time they're 40. And why is that? Because if their PSA is less than 0.6, we have very robust data that suggests that they do not need a PSA and they have essentially very little or no risk uh, until they're 50. Just, and, and that would be, so, you know, and, and we can often just really identify low risk people then. And at age 50, everyone should start getting a PSA. And while there are some, there are some arguments that can be made that we shouldn't have PSA screening, most of those arguments don't hold water when it comes to you know, PSA screening and doing it correctly. And after age 50, people should have an annual PSA. And sometimes people will put a cutoff. Well, not after 65, not after 70, not after 75. Um, I think a lot of times if men have very low PSAs, we tend not to screen annually as you age, but maybe sim but, but rather every two or three years. But you know, we, a better way to look at it is those people who would have a 10-year life expectancy, they really should have PSA screening because you know, when prostate cancer is caught and identified and, is tr and it is treated appropriately or surveilled appropriately, you don't see the morbidity, pain and suffering and expense that comes for men who show up with metastatic prostate cancer. You know, they progress, they universally progress to pain, suffering and death, even though we spend an enormous amount of resources in treating them. It's much better to never have metastatic disease. If a patient learns that they have an elevated PSA, does that mean they have prostate cancer? Absolutely not. It means that if they have an elevated PSA, they are no longer in a large subgroup of people where we can reliably tell them your risk of prostate cancer is exceedingly low. Now they are in a group of people where the risk of prostate cancer is substantially higher but it's only a risk. By definition, many people will have an elevated PSA, an abnormal exam, an abnormal free PSA ratio, and when we evaluate them and biopsy them, some of them don't have prostate cancer. And that's, a, that's a very common thing that I tell people as we approach after judicious screening and examination and discussion, and the next best step is to do a prostate biopsy, I will tell them, don't forget that one possibility of this biopsy is that you don't have cancer. Another possibility is that you have cancer, 
but that cancer is going to be low grade, low risk, and you will, we will not recommend treatment, but rather surveillance. It's only the third possibility when they would have a higher grade, higher risk uh, cancer, and they would, would need to be cons considering treatment. So you talked a little bit, what are the steps after an elevated PSA? Um, I typically, in my practice, will have an 85% biopsy positivity rate, meaning that when I have judiciously screened someone with PSA and other factors, and I and the patient elect to go to a prostate biopsy, there's an 85% chance that I will find cancer. Across the country, unfortunately, that's not the case. It's about 15%, maybe 20% in other places. But clearly, there's a lot of unnecessary prostate MRIs, prostate biopsies being done. And typically, I always tell people that there are certain benchmarks with PSA screening that if you've had one PSA that has been elevated, the rest of them negative, and we do a biopsy or an MRI, there's about a 20% chance that we'll find something you know, in, your, in, in the specimen. However, if you have multiple PSA rises greater than 0.75 per year, that risk of, of uh, prostate cancer goes up you know, exponentially from just a baseline of one elevated PSA. If someone has an abnormal digital rectal exam where one can feel a hard nodule, then yes, that's, a, that is a, that's another risk factor. Um, sometimes if patients had, you know, a, um, a family, just a long family lineage where everyone seems to die of cancer, well, yeah, those, those people tend to, you tend to find more prostate cancer in those people. You know, there's clearly either a familial, genetic, or environmental factor that, that leads to cancers being more prevalent in that group. If a patient uh, is diagnosed with prostate cancer, what does treatment look like? And the, the first thing when someone is, has a newly diagnosed uh, prostate cancer, they will often spend the better part of a, of a half an hour to an hour with me, and I will help them understand what, their, what is unique about their cancer. I will talk to them about whether or not they need staging tests you know, whether they should get a nuclear medicine bone scan, whether they should get a CT scan, whether MRI imaging is important, whether or not PSMA PET scanning is important. And, uh, and, and, and they understand that they very well may need to do that. I will also discuss with them whether or not they can use any of a number of commercially available genomic testings. Not everyone needs it. Um, for example, if someone has very high volume, high grade, high risk cancer, and they tell me based upon the biopsy, and they tell me they want genetic testing, a lot of times I'll say, well, is there any genetic test that's going to make you or me believe that, that you actually have low grade, low risk disease? And the answer is no. Well, why are we getting the, the, the testing? But very often, some, very often patients will have lower volume, you know, lower grade cancer, and they're considering active surveillance, and, and it's sort of on the fence in the terms of the volume of cancer, the grade of cancer, their family history, and the genomic testing and genetic testing is great for them. 
you know, because it really helps us use a second criteria to the histopathologic evaluation of the specimen. Now they have a genomic uh, score of that. And the treatment, you know, for those people, once we have staged them and graded them and evaluated them appropriately, we really divide those people into who should go into active surveillance and those who need active treatment. And I strongly encourage people to go into active surveillance when it's appropriate because they, had, they really are taking little or no risk uh, when selected appropriately. And I, and I, and I, I have over 400, like 450 patients right now in my practice that are on active surveillance. They, you know, for whatever reason, we believe that over the next six months of their life, that the risk of them going from curable to incurable is so low that they shouldn't be treated. On the other hand, I am a very busy um, uh, prostate cancer treatment person. I have lots of patients that are in active treatment in my practice. Um, the first and foremost thing that we like to talk about are you know, the various ways of freezing the prostate, heating the prostate, radiating the prostate, removing the prostate. And I routinely tell particularly younger men that we have 19 propensity-based match pair analyses, which is the way that we uh, evaluate uh, cancer studies in the United States because no one goes into randomized trial. No one, you're, no one's going to come to my office and say, I'm, and I'll say, hey, I'm going to randomize you to radiation, cryoablation, or surgery. No one does that. We we just look at the individual patients, and after they've chosen, you know, we match them stage for stage, grade for grade, age for age, and um, and comorbidity for comorbidity in a propensity. Uh, matching, and we follow them for decades, and we see what treatments work the best. And there are 19 propensity-based match pair analyses which document that people who have surgery first are going to have the best cancer-specific survival. And sometimes it, it really is that simple. Other times, you know, it's much more complex. And you know, and as I tell people, it's not particularly those with very high risk disease. It's not so much what you do um, in terms of one treatment being the only thing that's ever going to happen. Sometimes it's appropriate to use radiation therapy. Sometimes it's not appropriate. Uh, sometimes, uh, but ra and it's rare that you know, using energy like freezing or heating is the appropriate thing to do for patients. Um, and we, we carefully look at the individual's um, individuals' risks and what they have. And of course, once you've been treated primarily, whether it's with a robotic prostatectomy or with radiation, well, then we have ways of following those patients. And in, as time goes by, there are clear criteria that we can use for those people who have been successfully treated and those who are going to have a documented recurrence. And that's when you know a lot of the intellectual uh, framework has to be discussed with the patient. Do they need other treatments? Should okay, your treatment, your primary treatment for prostate cancer did not work completely, but do you really need anything else? I mean, the goals in a cancer center should not be to ruthlessly hunt out every cancer cell, regardless of how much it hurts a patient, that's, that's just not a good goal. The 
proper goal is to say, how do I prevent pain, suffering, and death from my prostate cancer patients? What is the best way to do that? If someone is treated for prostate cancer at age 70 and they die at age 85 of heart disease and someone does an autopsy and they find a rogue cancer cell that was still in their body, but it was clinically insignificant, well, that person's just as cured as someone where there was no, no cancer. What we want to prevent is pain, suffering, and death. You mentioned surgical intervention, and I wanted to bring up that you've been locally and nationally recognized for your pioneering work with robotic surgery. Why is that a great option for treatment for so many of your patients? Um, robotic surgery has a, a, a number of advantages. It is a very straightforward procedure in the hands of skilled surgeons. Um, typically with the Da Vinci robot, and I've been doing robotic surgery since 2003, um, this is a 60 to 90 minute procedure with exceedingly low blood loss. Um, we can look people in the eye and say that there's a track record where about one in 200 people might need a blood transfusion. That means like 99.5% of the people would not need a blood transfusion. We look at people in the eye and we talk to them about, you know, the what is it like for them? Well, well, you go to the hospital, you receive anesthesia. When you wake up, you'll have some soreness. But the majority of men who undergo a robotic prostatectomy are not even going to take narcotics. They will take anti-inflammatory medicine like Toradol and Tylenol. And even though they may have some appropriate levels of surgical soreness, they don't really have severe pain. We want people up walking and moving the same day of surgery. We want them to stay well hydrated. And as we, when we look at this, so there's a, there's a very quick way to get this managed. And more importantly, is that we want people to spend the rest of their lives with their family and friends and not in a doctor's office. And so if you undergo a robotic prostatectomy, the vast majority of men are going to have an undetectable PSA level. The Brian D. Jellison Cancer Institute at Sarasota Memorial is focusing on cancer care locally and, and having that cutting edge care close to home. How important is it to have that resource right here in the community? Well, well, well it's important because um, what we want to do is to make sure that patients know that they're getting multidisciplinary care. We don't want uh, physicians working on islands. We don't want patients being, uh, you know, feeling like they have no ability to get a second opinion. We, we don't want patients to say, well, this is all I know. Well, you know, here at the Jellison Institute, we have a multidisciplinary tumor board and not every patient, you know, needs to have multidisciplinary discussions. But as I tell patients, there's every reason when there is a, uh, a possibility of multiple pathways for treatment that we should bring their case to the tumor board. And we have that every Wednesday morning. And we discuss not necessarily difficult cases because you know this is cancer. We have guidelines and we have our, but these are cases that you know, everybody should have the opportunity, the pathologist, the radiologist, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, the, the, the urologic oncologist, where we all bring our expertise and our insight together and we can help deliver, you know, a patient, you know, in one short 
period to get five appointments, so to speak. So you had five appointments with five different doctors, and this is the consensus opinion. Because it's one thing to, you know, for a patient to randomly go see five doctors who don't talk to each other. You know, that's the old model of cancer care. Here you can have five, five doctors discussing the same patient at the same time with all of the data, everything in front, there's no mystery. And almost always we can congenially come to a consensus opinion and then we can we can deliver that consensus opinion to the to the patient, and I think it's you know I, it's certainly the way I would want my cancer care to be done, and that's the way that we're able to do it now. And the Jellison Institute, you know, provides a framework that allows us to do that. Dr. Carey, thank you for joining us for such an important discussion. And I know there have been so many misconceptions about things we discussed like PSA and prostate cancer care. So I'm glad we could bring a little clarity to that. For information on the SMH First Physicians Group Prostate Clinic, you can call 941-917-5400. And as always, we encourage everyone in our community to visit smh.com to get the latest information from Sarasota Memorial. Thank you.